0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Your word is our guidance and our life. It's not just a book with a bunch of words and it's just a bunch of rules that we're just supposed to follow. But Lord, your word is life. It is power. It is what moves in us. It is what moves us. It is what changes us and transforms us and helps us to get rid of our fear and our anxiety. It helps us to entrust everything over to you. It reveals who you are to us so that we may fully enjoy and, and, and grow in the relationship that we have with you. Lord, we thank you that your word is timeless, that it will always carry your truth and will always be what we need at any point in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I attended college at Moody Bible Institute, and like most smaller-sized Christian colleges, we only had a few college sports teams, both men's and women's soccer and volleyball. For those who had nowhere near the athletic ability to compete at that level, but still wanted to play some sports, each dorm floor had a term, uh, a team that competed in what we call the Intramural, uh, intramural League. Every fall semester, we played flag football because, you know, a bunch of Bible nerds playing tackle football would not have ended well. (laughs) Suffice it to say, my dorm floor was not very good. Even in that league, we weren't very good. In fact, we finished every season, oh, and however many games there were that season. One year, however, it was rumored that we were getting a new guy who played quarterback before being enrolled at our college. You can see how excited we would be about this prospect. When he showed up on the dorm floor, we had all these conversations about that year's season and went and practiced and ran all these plays, and we were so pumped for the season to start. Long story short, we ended up 0 and however many games there were in that season. As well. It wasn't that new guy's fault. It's that football is a team sport. And the rest of the team, well, never changed in our abilities. All that confidence we had before the season even started soon, to begin, soon began to fizzle out. We tried to follow the example of confidence and talent found in our new quarterback. But once we were matched up against someone from the other team, that was lost. It all just disappeared. We just defaulted back to how we played before. This morning, we're continuing on in the same passage we started out with last week. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church where at least a portion of that church had started out with the confidence of following the example of Paul as Paul followed the example of Jesus. But once something came to shake them up in that confidence, they started to fall back in their faith. Paul is telling these believers in Jesus who made up the church in this ancient city of Thessalonica, listen, if you've forgotten how you're supposed to live in the confidence of your faith and trusting God with things in your life, just remember how I acted when I was with you. I'm not giving you my example because I think I'm such a good person. I'm giving you my example because I'm striving to live the way that Jesus lived. We talked about that foundational mindset last week when we talked about how we as Bible-believing Christians are to interact with highly controversial and politicized social issues. If you're at all interested in that discussion of a couple of hot-button political issues and what the Bible says in explaining them to us, that message is up on our website and podcast platforms. In short, Jesus held to what he knew God's word said But he confidently, gently, and calmly related it to people who held different beliefs than him. We are to follow Jesus' example in that foundational mindset, not only with hot button social issues, but with any and every topic, with the utmost goal of sharing the gospel in a loving way. That is our utmost goal not to win any sort of argument, but to share the gospel of Jesus. In a loving way. And not only that. We, we follow Jesus' example. As Hannah did today. In being baptized. Baptism is that public declaration. Of that personal commitment we've made with God. In accepting Jesus' salvation on our behalf. A representation of dying to how we lived before. In following our sinful desires. And living our new life. In the power of that indwelling Holy Spirit. As we look at the specific context to which Paul is writing to the Thessalonian believers, believers in our passage this morning, we'll see, once again, how we are to follow Jesus' example with the way that we live our lives. Once again, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6-9 through 9, that we started out with last week. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to that uh, reference there. And if you didn't, that's okay. Uh, there should be a Bible located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there so we can all see this together. And as you're turning to this passage here, it's in the New Testament. If you have no idea where 2 Thessalonians is, you can look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. It's in the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And as you're turning there, I want to briefly go over the background of the context that Paul is writing in connection to. So that's what we'll do first, the background. So we're going to pull up this map here. Thessalonica was an ancient port city, right over here in the region of Macedonia, a region within the Roman Empire known as Macedonia. Because of Thessalonica's loyalty to a Roman emperor in his wars, they were granted special status within the empire. While they were still technically part of the Roman Empire, Thessalonica was ruled by its own city council. In addition, there were no Roman troops stationed within the city. So in other words, Thessalonica pretty much enjoyed the government of a self-governed city-state. That was a pretty special thing back in those days. These city officials' worst nightmare was any whiff of social unrest for fear that Rome would deem that the city council could not control their city and rescind that special status. Put Roman troops in there and rescind that special status. Now keep that cultural context of this city in mind. Paul, along with his missionary companions Silas and Timothy, entered Thessalonica around 50 AD. While on Paul's second missionary journey. Now, what is especially pertinent to our message this morning is that back in this time period, there were traveling philosophers who were drawn to these major cities where they would spout off some nice sounding sayings, bend more affluent ears, and then hold their hands out for donations. Paul wanted anyone he came in contact with, no matter where it was. To know that while his life's work was sharing the good news of salvation from sin found in Jesus, he was not anything like these traveling philosophers. Paul didn't want anything from them. Paul wanted nothing to come in between someone believing in the gospel except for the gospel itself. He didn't want any other walls put up. He didn't want any other obstacles that anybody had to jump over, come to grips with in their mind before they even started listening to Paul. All he wanted people to struggle with and wrestle with when it came to him was the gospel. That's all he wanted people to wrestle with when it came to listening to him. So one visibly huge thing that Paul could do to disconnect himself from this idea that someone might already have of him of just walking around saying some nice things and holding his hands out for donations was to get right to work with his hands. That was was the biggest thing that he could do. He wanted to show anyone that he was eager to share the gospel with, that he was also hardworking and was deserving of them listening to what he had to say. We find out from scripture that Paul was by trade, as Acts 18.3 tells us, a tent maker. That's what it says, that Paul was a tent maker by trade. When we talked about this before last October, we explored what that trade actually meant, what that trade entailed. At first glance, we might be tempted to think, how in the world could Paul support himself making tents? Was the demand for tents really all that big, that you could earn a full-time living by doing that? Actually, it was. There was quite a high demand for, for tents in this time period and in, this, in these major cities. If you're going to be doing any traveling, you would need a tent. Why? Well, you didn't have a car or a bus back then. You would either walk or ride a horse or a donkey, and you would normally bring a tent with you no matter what, in case, for whatever reason, you couldn't make it to an inn that night. Something delayed you, something waylaid you, you just couldn't make it to an inn that night, so you would want to have a tent with you at that point. In addition, Thessalonica was a port city. You can see there, it's right on the coast. They had a major port there in that city, which meant that lots and lots of people would secure passage on boats to go to other places throughout the ancient world. On most of these boats, there were no cabins like there are on boats today. So if you were a passenger on one of these boats for any length of time, you would also need a tent. During the day, the tent would provide you from the harsh Mediterranean, or it would protect you from the harsh Mediterranean sun and sea spray, and during the night, it would provide you privacy and shelter. So, in reality, the demand for tents was quite high. In addition, the term used for tent maker could also refer to one who worked with leather or canvas. Businesses were always in need of canvas products for advertising and sunshade over the front of their shops. The well-to-do wanted canvas to take with them on their beach trips and to provide shade for their yards. See, these people were just like people like us. They, they also were in need of leather and canvas. Thessalonica, as a port city, had a, remember, it's a port city, so it had a high demand for canvas ship sales as well and repairs to those sales. And on top of all of that, there were always small repairs that needed to be done on anything made out of leather or canvas. If you had gloves and that needed to be repaired, you'd take them to somebody who could work with leather. In short, there was no shortage of demand for Paul's trade in his day. Here was the thing, though. Paul didn't just stay in one city, spending time gathering clientele and building up his business, right? He didn't stay in each city for very long. No, Paul was always moving from place to to place. First and foremost, to share the gospel with as many people as possible. So how did Paul find work whenever he would enter these cities? He couldn't just show up in a new place with no reputation and expect someone to hire him on the spot, could he? Let me ask you this. If you're looking for somebody to do a job, Uh, that you need around your house or something, and you go on Yelp, are you going to hire somebody who has no stars at all, no reviews, no anything, to to boast about anything? No, you're going to find the guy that has the five stars, has all these reviews about telling uh, how good of a job he does. You're going to go with that guy. So Paul couldn't just waltz into any city and say, I'm a tent maker, come buy my stuff. And what he would do is this. Back in this time period, artisans did not have anywhere near the fierce competition that there is today in our country. Back in Paul's day, artisans of a similar trade banded together in trade guilds, all working together. The trade guild would sell their wares in a shop along a busy street and the workers that worked in that trade guild would earn a daily wage. So upon entering a city like Thessalonica, Paul probably went and sought out the local leather-working trade guild and got a job there, earning a daily wage. Whether or not Paul learned this trade while he was being trained by the great Pharisee Gamaliel uh, uh, after his father sent him off to Jerusalem around the age 10, we don't know. What we do know, however, is that Paul picked a trade that would offer him the most reliable work as well as the most portable. Leather workers only needed to travel with a few small hand tools, a couple of knives to cut the leather, and a needle and thread to sew pieces of leather together. That's all they would need. In short, as one biblical scholar pointed out, and I quote, Paul had chosen to arm himself with a skill that virtually guaranteed him jobs on every road he walked and on every sea he sailed. When would Paul have the time to share the gospel with anyone? There's there's another question, let alone teach those he led to Jesus about their new faith. Now perhaps, as one biblical scholar pointed out, Paul went to work at the trade guild early in the morning and then went and told and taught people about Jesus and the Christian faith in the daytime and early evening, then went back to the trade guild and worked long into the night. It's a long day, isn't it? Not only did Paul want to show the Thessalonians that he did not want anything financially from them, but he wanted to show them that he was no slacker. He worked And he worked hard. Working with leather and making anything from tents to awnings to boat sails was not easy at all. One worked for long hours bent over a workbench, slicing and sewing pieces of leather together that ranged from large awnings to small repairs. Perhaps Silas and Timothy followed suit and worked the same trade as Paul. Now why did I go through all of this? Because that's what brings us... To our next point so we have the background i had to set all of that up for you to get to our next point here the basis of what he then says to them keeping all of what we just talked about in mind let's go to our passage chapter 3 verses 6 through 9 now we command you brethren in the name of our lord jesus christ that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us What's Paul getting at here? What does he mean by unruly in in verse 6 there? The word used here for unruly could mean disorderly or that of breaking military rank. But here in this context, especially in how Paul refers to himself, the word most likely refers to someone who is idle and isn't doing anything productive with their time. In that way, Paul is refer- the people Paul is referring to are living insubordinate to the word of God and in a military sense are breaking rank because they're living in an undisciplined way and therefore are living fruitless and unproductive lives. Well, who is Paul referring to here when he says stay away from them? Remember how I told you that the, to, to keep the government and culture of Thessalonica in, in, in mind? Did you already forget that already? You still have that in mind? Okay. The city had special status with Rome, and any social unrest would jeopardize that special status. We all remember that? We find out from Acts 17 that when Paul entered Thessalonica, most likely right before or right after, he and, and, and Silas uh, sought out the local Thessalonian leatherworking guild. They went and found the local Jewish synagogue. There they started telling the Jewish people gathered there about the Jewish Messiah named Jesus who had fulfilled all of the prophecies given about the Messiah and had paid the penalty for their sin and complete inability to follow the Jewish law by dying and rising again from the dead. We read exactly this in Acts 17, 2 through 3. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is that Messiah. Here was the problem. A lot of those who started listening to Paul And giving their lives to following this Jesus as the Messiah, along with those of Gentile background, were prominent people, not only within that synagogue, but within the city also. We read some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. And like so many unfortunate human responses, those who made up the local synagogue became very jealous of this new movement of Christianity, brought to their city by this noob who just showed up out of nowhere to seemingly steal away all their prominent members. And so, some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the uh, the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Remember what goal that city council wants to keep in, at the, as their topmost priority. The synagogue leaders and the troublemakers accused these believers in Jesus, members of this new movement led by Paul, They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. Now you can see what this would start doing in the city council members' minds, can't you? You can see the fear that would start uh, happening in their minds. The result was this, quite understandable, given the civil government and the civil environment there, the people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. The city council demanded that these Thessalonian believers in Jesus post bail, and only then were they released. Thankfully, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were able to escape to the neighboring town of Berea. But what was so difficult about that flight was that the Thessalonian church was now without Paul, right? They were without their apostolic authority. There were elders that had been established over the church there, but Paul's authority wasn't there. Now, I reviewed what had happened in Thessalonica while Paul was there for an important reason. It was scary and difficult to be a Christian in ancient Thessalonica, wasn't it? Okay. It was scary and difficult to be a Christian in ancient Thessalonica. There were no lawyers to stand up for their rights. Their closest religious relatives, the Jewish synagogue members, were the ones to incite this persecution against them. Even the city council was actively in opposition to them. These Thessalonian Christians' jobs, families, and even lives were at stake because of this persecution of their faith. Now, combine that with an inaccurate understanding of end times events that Paul had partially been able to explain to them before he had to flee for his life, that they as believers were doomed to go through and were currently in the midst of horrible apocalyptic events. A portion of the church, in response, quit their jobs... And some even uprooted their families from their communities, abandoned the rest of their brothers and sisters in their faith, and headed for the hills because they thought to themselves, what's the point of any of it anymore? I recounted the picture of the intensity of the persecution against members of that church because I wanted us to see that any one of us may very well have done the same thing. If we were in that same place, We had the same incomplete and inaccurate information. We may have done the same exact thing. We're people just like them. Paul tried to correct their inaccurate understanding of end times events in his first letter to them, explaining that they didn't have to fear going through the horrible prophesied apocalyptic events because Jesus was going to rescue them before those events even happened by way of what we know as the rapture. However, apparently, during the interim time period of the delivery of the first letter, known to us as 1 Thessalonians, and the writing of Paul's second letter, known to us as 2 Thessalonians, all that teaching Paul explained in his first letter was not heeded, at least by some in the congregation. Why? Why was it not heeded? Apparently other influences had visited the church in that time period to reconvince the Thessalonians that their inaccurate beliefs about the end times were true. Because of this, Paul's words in his first letter to them were refused to be listened to. In other words, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed with this portion of the Thessalonian church and between 1 Thessalonians and now 2 Thessalonians, they still hadn't gone back to their earthly jobs. They were still living disturbed lives, living in a frantic state of unsettledness. They still didn't think there was a point to working an earthly job in light of the apocalypse. I can see how fear would play a part in that, and that's why I laid out all the background of persecution. But here was the bigger problem that Paul is addressing here. As as pointed out by one biblical scholar, these church members were not only disrupting the lives of those believers who were trying to work hard and lead peaceful earthly lives, but they they turned around and expected those same believers to provide financially for them as well. And you can see the tension and the disruption in the church. You can see how disruptive that would be to the life of the church and the unity of the church, can't you? Paul is essentially admonishing that portion of the church by saying, you're not going back to work out of fear of what will happen to you? Do you think my life was a cakewalk? when I was living and working among you, I killed myself day and night so that you saw I wanted nothing from you except for you to listen to my salvation, my message of salvation in Jesus. I did that for, as an example for you, that no matter how difficult it was and how much I may have been concerned about impending persecution, I still worked hard because that was how important the gospel was to me and for you to hear it. Now, at least some of you are taking the reputation for the gospel that I worked so hard to establish it, and you're tarnishing it by creating disruption and disunity within the church. According to one biblical scholar, because these believers would not heed Paul's teaching in his first letter to them, and we're causing further damage to the reputation of the gospel and the unity of the church, Paul asserts a sterner form of church discipline towards this group of people. In verse six, and he'll he'll get further into this later on in the letter, but in verse six he tells the other members of the church to not have anything to do with this disrupting group, to not have anything to do with them. Like I said, we'll get more into the specifics of this later on. But for now, Paul wants the church to know that he means business. He's not fooling around here. That's how much the unity of the church means to him. He didn't work as hard as he did for others in the church to smear the reputation of the gospel or the church. In fact, rather, he wants the church as a whole to follow his example of hard work for the kingdom of God. You'll notice in verse 9 that Paul tells them outright that he had a right to not work an earthly job like others advancing the gospel across the ancient world. But he purposely went without that right. He purposely worked hard with his hands and worked very hard with his hands to give an example to his children in the faith. Paul already generally commended the whole church for following his example because he followed Jesus' example. He wrote to the church in his first letter to them, So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way you imitated both us and the Lord. Paul followed the example of Jesus that no matter how much physical or spiritual pain it brought him, he was going to work hard as best as he knew how to spread the message of Jesus' truth and love. He then emulated Jesus' example to the Thessalonian believers. We have the same call to follow Paul's example as he followed Jesus' example. If we can work, we should work hard to be good representatives of Jesus. If we can't work, then we should be doing something else to represent Jesus to this world. Point is, none of us is off the hook to live idle and unproductive and fruitless lives. Colossians 3.23, in direct reference to employment, says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. doesn't matter who your boss is. doesn't matter how mean he is to you knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. You're not really working for, serving for that company that you work for or serve. In reality, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And that's how we should be acting with our work ethic and how hard we work. If we can work an earthly job to provide for ourselves and our families, we should work at it with all of our hearts. We should be seen by those we work with as the hardest working employees at that job because it doesn't matter who the boss is, how unfair the job is, or how little the pay is. As disciples of Jesus, we're not working for any of those things, ultimately. In reality, we are only working for Jesus, and that is then seen in our level of work, attitude, and ethics in that workplace. If we stay at home and raise our kids as our God-given position, we must work at that with all of our hearts, following the example of Jesus as we model the biblical worldview, behavior, dedication, faithfulness of Jesus. We've been given the incredible responsibility to model and exemplify who Jesus is and raising the next generation to love him and follow in his footsteps as well. If for whatever reason we can't work an earthly job, how are we using our time? Are we praying hard? Are we still working hard for the kingdom of God by serving others in whatever ways we can? Being there to comfort others, sending communication to encourage others? Are we encouraging our brothers and sisters to keep marching forward in their faith? And are we leading others to have that faith in Jesus? What are we doing? What are we doing with the time of our everyday days? Above and beyond that, as Paul did in following Jesus' example, are we being the church and being Jesus to a hurting world? Are we sharing Jesus' message of salvation and love to bring one more person into God's family? Are we serving the church and our surrounding community wholeheartedly in the humility and love of Jesus? Are we building up the church by the words we say and the actions we take? Are we building it up or are we tearing it down? Are we building up our brothers and sisters in the faith Or are we tearing them down? Are we exemplifying to a watching world what faith in and living for Jesus really means? Don't just talk about it. Show it. Live it out. We are not left lost, doomed to be tossed to and fro, not having an example to follow. We have been given the ultimate example of Jesus as well as the examples of all those who sought to live their lives for him. We are no better than the Thessalonians. We're people just like them. And we have no excuse to not follow Paul's hard work as he followed Jesus' hard work. Let us show each other in this world what it really means to faithfully follow Jesus by working hard as his representatives building his kingdom right here and right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it pulls no punches. Paul didn't beat around the bush. He was straight. He told it straight. Lord, I pray that we would take these words to heart, that we would use the minutes of every day that you have given to us to build up your kingdom to lead productive and fruitful lives as your representatives, both to our brothers and sisters and building each other up, but also to a hurting world. Lord, we pray that you would empower us to repent of what needs to be repented of, and that you would empower us to live the lives that you have called us to, to be good representatives of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our worship time this morning.